Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for finding the Toronto Today podcast for Wednesday, October 20th. We start by talking about and unearthing some older audio from Doug Ford, a more contemplative Doug Ford about immigration. And had he taken that tone two days ago, there's no controversy. This is what he said in 2018. We'll lay that out for you and give you the before and after of, again, the hot water that he found himself in among some with his comments about immigration and immigrants with a current and valid Ontario labour shortage. We'll talk about the growing concern in Haiti for 17 kidnapped missionaries and as well, Sabrina Nanji on uh, Queen's Park and what's expected from Doug Ford in the next couple weeks and why we feel like we're in the midst of an Ontario election campaign right now. We'll do what happened when as well and check in with Sabina Vora-Miller about COVID-19 increasing potential for vaccinations for kids and when we may be able to get rid of masks for kids as well. I push her on that a little bit. Have a listen. Thanks very much for checking us out. Federal reporter for Global. Uh, She's a phenom on TikTok as well. Rachel Gilmore. You're going to get me uh, on TikTok and you're going to show me the ropes. I uh, it's it's time. Um, We were arguing the other day about how somebody made me do Twitter in 2009 and life hasn't been the same since. I'm counting. I think you're the only Global colleague, I would trust. Alan Carter's not on TikTok. Far Nasser's not on TikTok. Anthony Robart, he's not a TikToker. You're the only one that can help me with this, Rachel. Absolutely. I mean, I can teach you a couple dances. We can, uh, we'll figure <laughs> it out. <laughs> I'm not sure the day. I, I, yeah, what about a spicy, hot political COVID takes that uh, 62% of viewers would disagree with? What about that? How about that? I mean, that could work, too. <laughs> Honestly, TikTok is a, it's a confusing beast sometimes. You never know what's going to resonate. <laughs> um, here's what I'm seeing a lot with uh, Justin Trudeau's visit two days ago. People are saying, okay, deserves to be there, should be there. It's, um, I know there's some people politically that like seeing Justin Trudeau squirm. I was a little bit uncomfortable. Some people saw the talking to he got from um, Chief Roseanne Casimir as as being quite forceful, a little offside. Did you weigh in on, on either side of that uh, that hot potato issue? <laughs> well, I mean, all I can tell you is that it, it definitely was uncomfortable to watch. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, she, she did not mince her words, but I mean, she also, everything she said there was true. She just detailed what happened. You know, they had... Um, They had their ceremony. They invited him. They gave him the option of sending even just a recorded message. And he did none of those things. He didn't acknowledge the request and flew over the community to, to, you know, to take a vacation with his family on a day that's supposed to be about reflection that his own government put in place. So, you know, um, I think it's just sort of one of those rare moments in politics (laughs) you can truly see the uh, visceral discomfort in the politician as a result of the pain that it caused to someone. All I, and I have to sometimes uh, discipline verbally uh, two young now teenage boys and all that was missing from that uh, two days ago with Chief Casimir is her going, are you looking at me when I'm talking to you? Are you, will you look at me? Like stop looking at, he would just look ahead into space, nod from time to time when she's just blasting him verbally it was it it, you don't see world leaders get that very often no i was kind of uh fixated on his face just watching (laughs) to see if he would kind of betray any emotion but he was feely the whole time (laughs) just looking off into the distance with you know sort of a very frozen look on his face because i think he was aware of that very fact that all of us were watching him in this moment that he was just getting berated so you know i mean but to be fair you know if you don't want to be berated in a press conference um you know that airs on national television maybe be a little more considerate when it comes to days that are really important to communities Rachel Gilmore is joining us. Uh, She covers federal politics for Global News. Now, I know you spotted this. I did, too. Both you and I, uh, political junkies. Colin Powell passes away two mornings ago at age 84. And and all of a sudden, maybe more than anybody else, in a weird way, almost any other public figure that's passed away, it now becomes a it became a tool of people on on, I suppose, the right and in the anti-vax movement 
to question the legitimacy of the vaccines. And it kicked off. It kicked off something I wasn't expecting. But then again, maybe, you know, maybe I wake up too po- thinking too positively every morning. And then by about 10 o'clock, that's just that's just burned to the ground. And I'm like, no, this is the world we're in right now. Of course, this would happen. Yeah, the problem is going on the Internet. That's uh, <laughs> when, uh, your hope for the world kind of disappears. But yeah, I mean, so it did kick off a lot of sort of anti-vaccine, um, you know, intensity online because of the fact that uh, Colin Powell is fully vaccinated or um, and but the, but the difficulty is, is, you know, despite being fully vaccinated, he had multiple myeloma, which is a cancer of plasma cells that reduces the body's ability to fight infection. So this is actually, as opposed to being evidence of why you shouldn't get vaccinated, mm-hmm. it's a reason why we all should. Because, uh, you know, vaccination is something that largely it protects you personally, but it also protects the people around you. It's sort of it's it's a part of living in society. It's a community responsibility, just showing that you care about each other, because there are going to be people who have these sort of weakened immune responses. That's why some immunocompromised people get boosters now, you know, yeah. Um And if they have that kind of weakened response, their body isn't going to build as many antibodies in reaction to the vaccine. But if everyone around them is vaccinated, they're less likely to get sick anyways. So, you know, it's uh, it's really just, if anything, more of a reason to get vaccinated as opposed to a reason to lose faith in the vaccine. I feel like um, you watch the media coverage like I do in this country and south of the border. And we like we sort of ride this wave between using the data, understanding the numbers and obviously the emotion. Everybody's personal covid experience is is their own. And and I respect that some people are more ready than others to, to move back into things and some people are more hesitant. But it's a weird one, right? Because what I noticed about the Colin Powell coverage and I want to know if you did is the week before. It's this awful story, and it is awful, no doubt about it. When when Dr. Dina Hinshaw reveals there's you know a teenage boy who'd been suffering um, in hospital, and he passes away and is COVID positive, um, you know people are very very conscious of the fact that they don't want to be pointing out comorbidities. I understand that, I really do. And then and then yesterday or two days ago, Colin Powell passes away, and people question the vaccines, and then. The kind of those same people are happy to list his six or seven comorbidities, one of which is his age, period. It's 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 a delicate dance. It's a really delicate dance to get it right. I'm not sure we do all the time. Yeah, no, that's very true. It can be so tough. I, I think that one of the difficulties with, you know, um, the general conversation about comorbidities is just how many things are considered comorbidities. I mean, obesity is considered yeah. a comorbidity, and that's really common. Um, so, you know, it's, and, and we don't want to say, right, that um, someone's life is less valuable or they, they have less of a right to survive and beat the virus than someone who doesn't have comorbidities. But I think uh, a lot of the conversation initially from my kind of reading about comorbidities uh, kind of before or, or a while ago was, um, you know, in relation to a time when we didn't have vaccines and, you know, people were trying to explain, look, you can think you're healthy, uh, but people who have a, a number of risk factors that a lot of people have, asthma, I mean, I think everyone grew up with, you know, somebody having asthma around them, um, those can really increase your risk of death. Um, but, you know, in the context of uh, someone with, like Colin Powell, I do think that mentioning things like age is maybe not as helpful, but mentioning the fact that he has this sort of immunocompromise um, is helpful in the sense that I think it educates people on the fact that they still need to be conscientious of those around them. But it is such a delicate dance because you want to make sure that you're not, you know, painting someone's life as less valuable or saying, you know, this person had comorbidities, so don't worry about it. You know, it's not going to happen to you. Um, I think, if anything, uh, comorbidity should only really enter the discussion mm. if it's educational for people in terms of how they can better protect those individuals. I got about 90 seconds, but I want you to be able to stretch out here. So they announced the border is going to open up last week. But I do wonder once we got that good news, and we're like, I can't wait to do this. I got a concert I want to go to. I want to drive to New York City. I want to drive here, drive there. Um, and then, you know, two days later, Christian Freeland says, we're still going to ask for a rapid test. We're still... I, you know, I get it. If you're going away for 10 days or you want to you know, reunite with a relative you haven't seen in a while, I don't think that's going to dissuade people. But I think it's going to dissuade the weekend and the day trips. How do you view it? 
Yeah, I definitely think it will. And I think that's sort of the intention um, from the government because they Canada does still technically advise against non-essential travel. Um, but I think, you know, we're kind of at this point where people are fully vaccinated and they're like, well, what's going to change for me long term? You know, I mean, I'm not going to get more vaccinated. <laughs> I'm not going to get more safe in that sense. Um, but uh yeah, I mean, it's a really big price tag to have. I mean, if you're a family of four traveling across the border, there's the tests in the States are like 200 bucks a piece. So, you know, and that's USD. So you're running like a hundred or sorry, a thousand uh, Canadian dollars just to get your test to bring you back across the border. And the odds of you catching COVID if you're fully vaccinated are incredibly low in the first place. So I do think that they mean it as a deterrent because they don't quite want people to kind of spring into travel just yet. But, you know, hopefully that kind of thing will change soon, especially as, you know, kids start to hopefully, uh, assuming everything goes well with the application from Pfizer, as soon as kids start to get vaccinated, I think uh, there's there's a lot more reason to, to feel comfortable and safe in travel. She is at, at Rachel Gilmore on Twitter. Find her there. Great to have you on. Thanks very much for spending the time with me. Thanks, Greg. I'll see you on TikTok. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I, you will know. Uh, you, you may need to be my first follower. I don't think my kids are going to follow me. There's no way they're following. They're, they're putting a follow in. Uh, they're very discriminatory about that. I'll, I'll, in a discriminatory society, they're the worst. Thanks for doing this. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. An unbelievable story from Haiti. Haiti's always in the news, and usually it's never good. Um, let's be honest. Sometimes you look and go, wow, I'd love to visit the Caribbean. Haiti's not at the top of your list. It's had a lot of struggle. If anything, people who are trying to go to Haiti are people trying to fix Haiti or make a difference there. 17 members of a U.S.-based missionary group were kidnapped over the weekend by a well-known gang, and that gang's asking one a reported $1 million ransom U.S. per person, including five kids being held. Um, there's a gang called the 400 Mawozo that made the demand Saturday. Uh, the um, president of Haiti was assassinated in his own home in July. So it's utter chaos. That's no exaggeration. Kevin Edmonds is professor of Caribbean studies at the University of Toronto and is kind enough to join us now um, to uh, add some context. Professor Edmonds, thanks very much for making the time uh, for me. It's great to have you on. Good morning, Greg. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to. When this story happens over the weekend, um, you know, a lot of people get shocked. A lot of people get alarmed. But people who study Haiti and see so much of, uh, as I said, the chaos and disorder, they kind of shrug their shoulders and go, yeah, that's Haiti. How did you react? Well, I, I mean, to be honest, I didn't shrug and say that's that's Haiti in a nutshell because it still caught, I think, everyone that follows the country by surprise. I think you're right to say there has been an uptick in kidnapping since the beginning of the year, and particularly after the assassination of President uh, Jovenel Moïse in July, uh, because that created more of a political vacuum in the country. And it's important to point out, and I think something that we need to kind of get out a bit more uh, around this narrative is that the gang problem in Haiti was not something that just, you know, kind of fell out of the sky, that Moïse had actually been using them um, as, as, a, as a way to govern, as weird as that sounds. But he, he has a lot of connections because this 400 Mobozo gang um, was actually able to rule their territory with impunity and not being held accountable for their terrorizing of the community there for, as far as we know, the last three years. And that's really important to, to highlight because during that same time over the last three years, Moyes had faced a lot of challenges to his rule. Um, I don't know. It didn't get as much coverage in, in the media as, you know, obviously the kidnappings. There weren't Canadians involved, so I, I totally get that. But Moyes had been, uh, and, and the party that he was with was looked at a, or, or in a corruption probe, which said that he and his allies and his cronies had stolen up to $3.8 billion uh, of, yeah. of money that came out of the earthquake, most of it from Venezuela. So that was from the 2010 earthquake that was with the preceding government. But that, that brought a lot of people out on the street and the Haitian government and the Haitian National Police didn't have the capacity to govern these protests. So one of the tools that Moise used was to actually use the gangs to police uh, what he thought were the neighborhoods and the communities which were organizing these protests. And that has been happening for the last three years, and we're at a point now where that kind of spiraled out of control. 
and and we have gangs like 400 Mabozo that are no longer um, confined to that that kind of their their territory and are expanding, and we see that they're yeah. they've moved on to things like uh, kidnapping missionaries rather than their typical targets, which are um, just everyday Haitian people. Yeah, this gets a lot more international attention when this happens. Hey, listen, every life is, is valuable, but we know. I mean, look, what happened with the two Michaels in China gets more attention than if China detains two of their own. Of course it will. Uh, by the way, Kevin Edmonds joining us, professor of Caribbean studies at the University of Toronto. It, it When the president was assassinated in the summer, it was very fair to, for people to just ask, is, is Haiti even... You know, can it be can it be governed right now? Its troubles are so severe. It doesn't matter if if it's been a natural disaster. It doesn't matter if it's economic. Um, but the the institutions we have our own political institutions that that rise and fall. But the institutions there, um, they've been just feel like they've been falling apart for decades. Have they have they not, Kevin? Uh, yeah, I think I think it's important to put into context. They're, they're, again, you're you're on point with with what you're saying, uh, but. The thing is, is that Haiti has had a lot of help to get into this position. And when I mean that, uh, it might have been well-intentioned, but it produced the opposite effect. So for, for your listeners, Greg, that mm-hmm. Haiti had a dictatorship up until 1986, uh, the Duvalier dictatorship. Ba- Baby you know, Doc, as he was known, right? Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that led to a lot of, you know, like any dictatorship, there's people that were fleeing that went into exile, a lot of, um, you know, our Haitian community here, the Haitian diaspora in Montreal and Quebec in particular left the country because of the oppressive and authoritarian rule of, of Duvalier. But Duvalier was also notorious for killing his political opponents, torturing them, and used a gang called the Tonton Makuts, which was um, basically um, his own personal army to intimidate opponents or perceived opponents. And when the dictatorship fell in 1986, we had the first uh, elections you know, in Haiti's modern history, free and fair. And... Uh, those elections weren't able to actually produce any stability for the country because after the first eight months of the new president being sworn in, he was overthrown in a coup. The U.S. uh, military had to put him back in 1994. But from the very beginning, uh, when Hades tried to have, you know, rewrote the Constitution and had peaceful transfers of powers between, um, you know, leaders, uh, it, it's been derailed for the most part. And Canada, unfortunately, has played uh, a key role in this, uh, not in the 1991 coup, but in the 2004 coup against the same president, Jean-Bertrand Aristide. And some of the decision that Canada has made as well, um, post-earthquake, in regards to... Um, there there was also a political vacuum, or not vacuum at the time, but there was more of a crisis in, in, in regards to who was going to be leading the country. Yeah. And you can imagine with all the money that was raised, the, the almost $11 billion that was pledged towards Haiti, they wanted to see Canada, the United States, the Organization mm-hmm. of American States, wanted to have a, a leader in, in Haiti that they could trust. Oddly enough, and maybe people didn't do a background check, Michel Martelli, who was the, the hand-picked favorite of, of this group, was actually an admitted Makut or the paramilitary himself. So we've started to institutionalize this kind of uh, gangsterism yeah. in Haiti, which is actually really, really dangerous. And, and we're starting to, you know, not starting to, but we've been seeing the, the, the outcome of this. I only got 30 seconds. I wish I could talk for a half hour about this, and I want to do it again sometime with you. But the the appetite for the U.S. going in and helping fix, it's probably not there right now. There's COVID. There's what just happened in Afghanistan. Not that that would be... You know, similar, but people don't like the idea of of foreign intervention, right? And the U.S. has had their fingerprints all over Haiti for a lot of the 20th century. Um, do they stand down? Do they just wait this out? It's uh, they send in troops, as you said, in the mid 90s to kind of restore order, and and they didn't change much. What do you think happens here? Yeah, and and it wasn't just in the 90s. In 2004 to 2017, the UN was there too. So this is not something right. that is is a long time uh, ago. I think that we need to understand that Haiti does have a constitution. There are lots of people that have been historically working uh, on the right side of, of history mm-hmm. to make it work, but they get undermined. So so I would say let's use diplomatic channels. Let's exhaust all of that and then uh, work with the Haitian opposition because it doesn't seem that the current administration is really receptive or, or engaged in a lot of what's going on. And then 
we can move from there. But I, I don't think necessarily the intervention will produce anything positive. Yeah. Um, and, and it's always tricky in these kinds of situations with kidnappings that obviously if they pay the ransom, it's going to encourage it to happen more and more often, which we don't want to see. It's true. Kevin Edmonds, brilliant stuff. Professor of Caribbean Studies at University of Toronto. Let's chat again. Thanks for making time for our That's listeners great. today. Okay. Have a good day. Very pleased to welcome in our uh, next guest. Uh, we've talked to her several times about COVID-19 and how we're approaching it. Pharmacologist Savina Vora Miller, our guest. It's great to have you on again. Thank you for the time. Hi there. Thanks for having me. By the way, I thought I saw that uh, and I'm, I'm happy he follows me. You made you made the list. Timothy Caulfield listed you. <laughs> As one now, remember he here's his tweet. My list of the best and worst places, and then probably when you see your mention, you're like, "Oh God, am I on the worst?" But you're not. You're on the you're on the best. You're now. I don't know if those are ranked, but you're right by uh, Dr. Eric Topol from the states, who's amazing, also. Yeah, I mean, when I first saw the tweet, I was like, "Oh man, am I going to be the Hall of Shamers?" <laughs> but I was very relieved to see that I was not part of them. <laughs> I've had so many—I wouldn't even call them up and downs—with um, ID specialists and epidemiologists, and I'm like, they. I, when I reach out to them, and I'm like, they're quiet for a while. I'm like, oh, I must have said something to disagree with. But how are we all going to agree twenty times out of twenty times about restrictions and what we're doing and all that stuff? Right? We're all trying to make our way the right, the right method, the methodology, right? That's exactly it. I think we're all in this together and we're all trying to muddle through all the data as it comes. So you saw the reaction. I talked about this um, with our federal correspondent, Rachel Gilmore, earlier. Um, I, I, I think we announced on our show, not that we broke the story, but when Colin Powell passed away at age 84, we mentioned it. We talked about it. The family documented that he was fully vaccinated. I kind of didn't expect that in itself, Sabina, to get politicized even on our side of the border right twitter has no borders sadly um and and i just saw so much bad info bad takes bad like it i did not think the death of an 84 year old man with numerous comorbidities would then become a referendum and and on whether the vaccines work or not but but i guess i should have known better right it was stunning to be honest um seeing all the fallback um with respect to his unfortunate death i i was pretty shocked but you know when i when I saw the news, uh, my first reaction was, oh, man, here we go. So I was bracing myself for it. And unfortunately, you know, I was just as disappointed as I thought it was going to be. It's a weird one, too, because um, I'm Larry King passed away on a day that I was working also in February. Larry King was 87 years old. Um the amount of things he'd been through several well several marriages but i don't know if that creates any more stress i wouldn't know but but several heart attacks he'd had several massive health episodes um and was quite sick when he when he passed away he had stents inserted he had uh, a constant problem um with heart he, he fought a cancerous tumor in his lung so i thought about that with comorbidities and i'm like well, no one pre-vaccination, right? So, I mean, no one was questioning. Well, he had a lot going on. It may not have just been COVID, but post-vaccine, when we're a lot smarter and we also know how to risk mitigate better, we've got a controversial death that people are polarized about. I couldn't believe it. That's exactly it. And I mean, first of all, I think that it's important to remember that no vaccine is 100% effective, right? Every vaccine, um, mm. you know, there, there is still that possibility that you might actually get COVID even after you get vaccinated. But as you brought up, you know, General Colin Powell was 84 years old. He was also battling multiple myeloma, which is a type of mm -hmm. blood cancer that, in fact, also has, you know, dysregulated B cells, your know, antibodies. Um, and, and we know that people with multiple myeloma and other blood cancers and those with dysregulated B cells can actually have a diminished or a reduced immune response to the vaccines, i.e. the vaccines may not necessarily work in some people. Um, and that's, you know, exactly why we're looking at doing these third shots for those who are moderately to severely immunocompromised. Um, and, and that's also the reason why it is really, really important for the rest of us to be vaccinated. And that's really the concept of herd immunity is not just protecting yourself, but also ensuring that you're protecting the rest of your community. And it's just so incredibly important over here. And we can see how, you know, um, people not getting vaccinated are leaving those who are, you know, vulnerable and, and additionally immunocompromised um, to be exposed to the, to the virus.
I think that's so well said. I, you, you may not have spotted it, and I played it earlier, but Charles Barkley on the on the NBA pregame show with the season starting mentioned about Kyrie Irving. I'm sure a person you're very familiar with who is adamantly uh, not getting vaccinated, and Barkley said, you don't just do it for you. You're doing, even if you think you can fight this off and you can fight that off, it's the people you come in contact with. I, You know, would, would my, if I had a healthy six-year-old, would I be terribly concerned about a bad outcome to be honest no would i get my six-year-old vaccinated so my 77 year old mother would be comfortable indoors with him yes that's the whole point of all of this yep that's exactly it right and 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 i think that the concept of community immunity is just so so important and we need to get there that's the Mm. only way we can get out of the pandemic is if we're actually you know we have that armor up around the our, our entire community and we're not leaving anyone behind Here's what I'd ask you. Um, we've had a number of events that some people have been um, concerned about. I'd even start with say, well, what will people do Labor Day weekend? Schools are going to reopen. Um, you know, e- even sports teams like the Raptors playing tonight. So the Jays have 30,000 people indoors because they closed the roof a few weeks ago. Um, there have been big soccer games. That great soccer game with Alfonso Davies scoring was a week ago tonight. And then Thanksgiving, Sabina. And Ryan Imgrind, uh, who's on the show frequently, he'll be on tomorrow, notes no increase in COVID-19 cases. Cases continue to drop. And someone says to him, well, wait a minute. I thought schools were unsafe and children were super spreaders. But he points out we are having school spread. Of course, we're having some. Imagine how great we'd be doing without elementary schools. So I ask you the question, are we a lot more insulated by a growing level of immunity because of our vaccination rate than even we might have thought two months ago? Don't the numbers suggest that? They do. Yes, absolutely. They do. But at the same time, I think we're also being very cautious with all of our other precautionary measures that mm-hmm. we still have in place. So, you know, I think vaccines can only take us so far where we're not anywhere close to actually getting to herd immunity at this point, given that those who are under 12 are not yet vaccinated, but we are still doing things like masking, you know, and you can see in provinces that have similar rates of vaccinations, but dropped uh, masking early on, we see how the cases of COVID have been increasing exponentially. Um, The other thing we're doing, you know, with a lot of these arenas, especially our, where we're doing rapid tests, for instance, we're trying to get those out to businesses. And, you know, in fact, we should be doing that in schools as well right now. But mm. these are all things that we have in our arsenal that we that we need to use, because at this point in the game, um, just vaccines on its own are just not going to be sufficient. We, you know, vaccinations will definitely help once we actually get everyone vaccinated. But up until that point, mm. I have to say that all of the other precautionary measures we're taking that's really what is driving our low case counts. Yeah, uh, and I'm I'm th- I'm thrilled with it. And uh, you know, when I mention it on the radio or or anywhere else, even you know, even talking amongst friends, it's not a victory dance. It's not mission accomplished. Far from it. But I'm pretty pleased because I thought it might go this way. I thought we had a highly vaccinated community. And to your point. I think we know how to risk mitigate. We know a ton more about the situations to avoid, maybe than we did a year ago at this time when we didn't have any vaccines. That's exactly it. And, you know, the transmission in schools is going to occur, but it's also going to mirror what's happening in the community. And so if you're having low cases in the community, you're going to have low cases in schools. But, of course, you will see more and more cases increase in schools because that's really where the kids are congregating, you know, and and in many many grades without masking, for instance, in junior kindergarten, senior kindergarten. Um, But, again, it's so important to make sure that the community cases are low so that we can actually protect our children until they can get vaccinated we're uh, joined by sabina vora miller pharmacologist on uh, global news radio 640 toronto all right here's where uh, you know I, I hit you with something but i think you'll be ready for it we talked about it top of the hour and we talked about the potential to end masking in schools not now not next month not even by christmas but can we see a roadmap where we could do it by the end of the year? And the reason I ask this is, yes, we're worried about kids spreading more than themselves getting sick. I absolutely understand that. And a major concern last year at this time was kids might infect their parents with something from school. They might infect high-risk teachers in those classrooms. Those groups have had access to vaccine by next April. They'll have had access to vaccines for an entire calendar year. So I get it that some parents ask me, and I'm sure they ask you, too, when will the masking stop of kids in school? There's no easy answer, but what's your guess when I throw that at you? 
Yeah, I definitely don't think we're going to see uh, masks being dropped by the end of this year. Um, I think that we are still... Sorry, the end of the school year or the calendar year? I just want to clarify that. Calendar year. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I definitely don't think it's going to happen before the end of this calendar year. Potentially, maybe by the end of next um, school year. But, I mean, at this point, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. We haven't moved anywhere close to where this disease can be considered endemic at all, right? And pandemic is basically where the spread is still unpredictable and uncontrolled, i.e. we don't know what it's going to look like in the next month or in the next two months. Um, so up until that point, uh, you know, we are still going to see masks that are that uh, are going to be in place in schools. But I also want to remind everyone that um, while children are less impacted by severe disease, it doesn't mean that they're not impacted. I mean, again, if you look at the numbers coming out from the U.S., more uh, pediatric deaths have occurred due to COVID than influenza. Right. And so it's not it's not um, it's not definitely not something to sneeze at. Um, for instance, in the last year, there have been 500 pediatric deaths um, due to due mm. to COVID-19, whereas in any given year for due to influenza, you might see around 200 um, at the most. So we're seeing mm. at least double, if not more than mm. that, in terms of pediatric deaths. And there's also the mm. issue of long COVID. Um, and we're getting really good data coming up from the UK showing that children are impacted. You know, 10, 10 to 15 percent of children get long COVID. And we're looking at these are children who might have long lasting impacts on, on their heart, on their lungs, on, on their brains. And all of these things are concerning. And no, so not 10 to 15 percent of all children, 10 to 15 percent of COVID cases that get sick, that's symptomatic. Right. I want to clear, just to not, just to make not sure. Not necessarily symptomatic, um, even asymptomatic. Even children who've had mild asymptomatic right. um, COVID can, in fact, go on to have long okay. COVID, and they can, in fact, go on to have some other post-acute um, syndromes uh, and like like your multi-inflammatory um, uh, syndrome as well. And so, all of these can occur even with mild infections in mm. in children. And so, I think that's why it's really important to make sure that we are doing everything we can to keep them protected because we don't want to take that chance. We don't want to take the risk to see, hey, what happens if we, you know, just let it um, spread. And, and in fact, that's the strategy that the UK took. And they're at a point where they have, you know, over over 20,000 new cases um, in, in, in children or, you know, on a daily basis. And so we don't want to be in that position. You're right. And they haven't vaccinated their 12 to 17 year olds, which is a rather controversial uh, government and health and public health decision as well. I got to leave it there. I hope we get to chat next week. Thanks very much for the time today. Thanks for having me. You bet. Sabina Vora Miller, our guest. She covers Ontario politics policy for the Queen's Park Press Gallery. At the QP Observer, she is Sabrina Nanji. So tell me about you, um, not not in general, but are you back at Queen's Park in person? I know some people are allowed back in. Have you made it back to the hallowed halls? Yeah, um, I'll be heading down there uh, for question period this morning in a couple hours uh, for the debate. But yep, uh, we're all back to, to almost normal at Queen's Park. Things are a little different. There's a lot less people, <laughs> mostly just MPPs, the staff that need to be there, a couple of reporters. Um, and of course, you know, now you need to show your vaccination pass uh, or receipt, I should say, um, uh, to get into the building or, you know, proof of a negative test. I'm so, sure I'm sure you're eager never never to hear the phrase again. One question, one follow up. Um, <laughs> yeah, scrums are uh, <laughs> where we ask ministers questions uh, a, a little a little more back to normal. We get to ask mm. it in person. It's a little uh, more organic. We're getting uh, I would like to think better answers, but I guess we'll we'll see you later today. I, I played a clip earlier in the show. I, I dug it out last night and found it from Doug Ford on the campaign trail in 2018 running for premier. And he talked about immigration and he. He laid out a great case and said, I hear from professionals, people who have degrees. They call me and they say, I can't get the job I need to to, you know, to to assimilate and to settle in. So I'm forced to take something. And I'm like, this is a really thoughtful guy here. I actually think I know people are digging in. That's politics. But I thought what he said, I just I didn't understand. It seemed like directed by anger, you know, uh, channeled by you know, um, emotion. And I, I didn't understand it. I, I, I'd see it for what it is. I don't think it's quite what a lot of people are saying it is. How did you view it? Yeah, you're right. I mean, the comments that he made this week while on a campaign style swing in Windsor, you know, saying that, uh, you know, 
what his critics say sort of suggested that immigrants, some immigrants only come here to collect the dole or, you know, go straight on social assistance. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the premier's wrong on this one, you know, just even just policy wise. I mean, n- new immigrants coming here um, don't actually qualify for the provincial social assistance program right away. I mean, that, that takes years. So, I mean, I think, you know, that we're not, we might not hear an apology from the premier. We certainly didn't get one yesterday. That's something that the critics, his op- the opposition parties and his critics are calling for um, advocates in the immigrant community. But I don't think we're going to hear one. We cert- he certainly didn't back down yesterday in question period. You know, he, he told the legislature that he's been pro-immigration from day one. Um, and, and, you know, a, a, some of the stuff he was saying wasn't wrong. You know, I mean, uh, this country does have a skilled labor shortage and yeah. more needs to be done about that. But, uh, you know, he, he, he didn't back down on what he said. Uh, you know, he, he pointed to Ford Fests and, and said that, you know, just look at the diverse group that, that shows up at a Ford Fest. Um, I, I think he's he's going to just keep barreling through on this one. Feels like as well, some of what we see, there's always rhetoric on the campaign trail. We were seeing it from the other two major parties. Some of what I see in a campaign is going to be what he campaigned on for 2018. And it worked. I'm for the little guy. I'm for you. There's going to be business owners that, that say you are. And yet in the pandemic, with how locked down we were, that's that might be a... You know, that's a hard bridge to repair going back to some business owners saying you locked us down. We're small business and you let the big box stores stay open um, all the time ad nauseum. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, the the small business community, especially rest, the restaurant sector is, is not happy right now. And, you know, they might be hearing more this week on uh, capacity limits, something that they've been waiting to hear about and have been up in arms about, uh, you, you know, in recent days because of uh, some some venues getting their capacity caps lifted, where whereas restaurants are still stuck um, with distancing rules that essentially they say leave them at, you know, half the people that, that they could have in there normally. So I think, yeah, this, the, you know, there, there's a lot, there's a lot that the premier is dealing with right now. Um, he is certainly in, in campaign mode. And I think even, mm-hmm. even the opposition parties as well, I think that's why it was interesting to see the, his critics, you know, uh, pounce on, on these remarks, you know, say that, that this is a dog whistle, uh, his, his remarks about uh, immigration, you know, that, that he needs to apologize. Um, mm. I, I think that, you know, the, the story, because, because the premier hasn't apologized, uh, and we saw the, the critics, you know, hounding him about this in question period um, that this is this is going to have oxygen. But, you know, mm. we've seen the premier um, do this before where he's had a history of putting his foot in his mouth. You know, it was mm. only earlier this year where he said that Andrea Horvath, you know, the official opposition leader, sounded like nails on a chalkboard. Um, you know, a, a lot of people felt that that comment was sexist and, and he did not, you know, um, explicitly apologize for that. I think yeah. that, that some in the government have recognized it. We did hear, you know, the health minister try to walk it back a little bit, you know, see the premier didn't really mean to say that, um, but she didn't go as far as to say an apology was necessary. Sabrina Nanji, uh, excellent reporter, QP observer. I want to ask you something uh, about, um, you know, the NDP attacking Stephen Del Duca. There's, there's a constant, you know, you've heard, well, you know, don't punch down, only punch up. That's a party with 40 seats, the official opposition, and they're digging in on a party with seven seats. I know they're the liberals. I know they've got more history in governing in provincial politics. I got 45 seconds. Are you surprised that there's an early you know, salvo from the NDP towards the liberals? Like, why are they threatened by a party with seven seats? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I think it's the polling that uh, it's. You know, it is a little embarrassing for the NDP. They haven't been able to capitalize on, you know, the liberals obscurity or the the PC's mistakes throughout the pandemic. Um, You know, and I think Del Duca is shaping up to be the man to beat for 2022. Uh, He he came out with a lot of bold promises this week. And, um, uh, you know, he's working hard to build the party back a four day work week, ranked ballots. Uh, I don't know if this, you know, time will tell if these will move votes over to him, but he's really coming out with bold promises right now. Um, and I think it's working in his favor, grabbing headlines. Uh, we got seven or eight months to go, and it already feels like uh, it's full campaign swing. Uh, follow her on Twitter at Sabrina Nanji at the QPobserver.ca. Thank you very much for doing this for me, Sabrina. Thanks, Greg. Absolutely. Uh, lots to come before nine o'clock. Let's check into the newsroom with Dave Bradley. Now, twice in the same day, a pedestrian hit and killed while crossing a street in Toronto yesterday. And we have a little more information with regards to the one that happened around 930 last night in East York. That one happened near Pape and O'Connor. Police now say it was an 81-year-old man who was crossing mid-block, was hit by one car, thrown into another 
The 82-year-old driver of the first vehicle, a Porsche SUV, took off but later called police and is cooperating. Too early to say if charges will be laid, but that would happen only hours after a 17-year-old girl was hit and killed by the driver of a minivan near Birchmount Collegiate in Scarborough. Police say in that one, charges could be coming. Not expecting a championship this year with the Raptors in the midst of a rebuild, but one could be nice. There will be no Kyle Lowry this year, but the Raptors kick off a new season tonight against the Washington Wizards. In this 75th anniversary season of the NBA, Toronto has the most diverse team in the league. Ten players on their roster from nine other countries. That includes hometown rookie Delano Banton, who grew up in Rexdale. And an announcement coming this morning that delivery drivers and truckers will be happy to hear. New legislation will be announced which would mandate washroom access for those drivers. That was a huge problem through the pandemic. Uh, Washrooms were closed off in many buildings, but the new rules will be the first of their kind in Canada. Awesome, Dave. Yeah, that's an important thing. Now, they can't come in and use our bathroom when they drop off, skip the dishes at our houses. No, I just that's uh, right. clarify yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, no. Because then I got to clean it. I got to clean it up a little bit. There's there's cloths so, and can I just soap come, everywhere. Can I come in? No, no. Just leave, leave the food. The plumber can use it because if he doesn't get to use it, he's got, he's got tested out before he yeah, leaves. That's that's true. And he knows how to fix it if he breaks it. Bingo. That's exactly the point. Uh, lots more with Dave Bradley coming up at nine o'clock. Uh, we'll talk to Sabina Vora Miller coming up next about the controversy over Colin Powell, vaccines for kids we inch ever so close, and things we're not talking about all before 9 o'clock, 8.35. Thanks for joining us on Toronto Today. Let's check the roads right now. Global News Radio 640 Chopper Traffic, and we do that with Jackie King. Two new mayors in Calgary and Edmonton, and they're also voting on, uh, they voted on daylight savings time. They're still counting those votes. We are not in daylight savings time yet. Another two weeks or so. I, the the after Halloween week we do it around the seventh or eighth. Uh, I've traveled to the UK a lot on the Halloween weekend, and they do it on Halloween. So it's a spring forward, fall back, and they get an extra hour if they're celebrating Halloween on Saturday night, which we did last year. This year it's a Sunday night, and I know that there will be Halloween parties and get-togethers and gatherings and things that are of a safe nature. I mean, you could make the case there were a lot to do with Halloween that was safe last year, but certain politicians didn't see it that way, and certain public health officials didn't see it that way. But I think we're in great shape today, uh, a week from Sunday, for Halloween to get going. Um, Raptors will play tonight. They start a journey. They really do. It's the first time they've been home since late February 2020. They were on the road, including a game in Utah last year when COVID just sort of walloped all our existences. Yeah, you could see it coming in late February. You weren't sure what was going to be different in the weeks and months to come. I'll talk about that a little later on. Let me start here. Doug Ford, uh, yesterday, the premier of the province, decided not to apologize. I got a couple messages. You're wrong. You said he'd apologize. Well, remember Justin Trudeau when he went on the Thursday to Tofino, B.C., apologized the following Tuesday. Um... I think the language was clunky. I know there's a lot of people digging in. And I don't like the comments because I think you'd leave yourself out there with the ability to be misunderstood on a regular basis. It was a little bit of a word salad. I'll read you the quote again. We played it a few times yesterday and most of you reacted to it. We did phone calls, texts all morning on it um, and phones on the eight o'clock hour. You come here. This was the message, if you will, um, for immigrants coming to the province you come here like every other canadian has come here you work your tail off if you think you're coming to collect the dole and sit around not going to happen go somewhere else you want to work come here dolly begum uh in question period yesterday the ndp mpp asked him to apologize for the suggestion that some immigrants arrive aiming only to collect social assistance ford wouldn't do it um he said he's been pro-immigration from day one did some digging And I'm going to play you audio from three years ago that actually, I think, paints Doug Ford while he's running for premier in a positive light in this distinction. And had he said two days ago what he said in 2018 when he's on the campaign trail, I don't think we've got a problem. If anything, I think it's a feather in the premier's cap. Now, um, there's two things happening. There always are. There's always two truths, it feels like, in 2021. We talked about that with COVID yesterday, with we're, we're riding this wave and, and having this toggle, if you will, 
about what does the data, what do the numbers tell us, and how emotionally sensitive should we be about something? I saw people excoriate. We had a guest on yesterday excoriating Premier Ford for being racist. That's his opinion. I don't find the comments racist. I think they can be pushed as insensitive. I think they can be pushed as a late, you know, a, a, a trope. I think they can be pushed as xenophobic. I don't find them that way. And you might say, hey, you're not the one that needs to find them that way. But I would say this about a lot of things that we've moved forward on. Um, <laughs> there are, there's, it's half we got to get understanding about cleaning some stuff up. We did that when the Me Too movement came around. We did that with diversity in the workplace. And does that change the fact that we live in a ultra... Does that, any of that change the fact that we live in an ultra-sensitive society? We live in a society where there are professional victims out there. And do we, does that change the fact that we live in a universe where, as I put it, you could like ten, nine things out of 10 about somebody, but the one out of 10 that you might disagree with them on seems to divide us more than ever right now. I understand what Ford meant. The words are clumsy. I didn't understand the anger. I didn't understand that. I, he, there, something about the concept of the question, something about the concept of the issue, the idea that we've got a labor shortage and we need more people from other countries to fill it, just kind of ticked him off. It, it, it must have ticked him off to some extent. And there is documentation to back the fact that when we've had vacant jobs here in Ontario, that Ford has pushed immigration's way more a federal issue. I think that's important to point out. And nobody was pointing it out yesterday. I'm not even sure I did a good job at pointing it out. Some days all, something slips through the cracks. and I'm like, damn it, that's a good point. Federal immigra it, it, immigration is about what happens federally, not necessarily provincially. Now, my one thought in, on immigration, and as I said, you say the word immigrant, and, and, then, and then throw in a little mix of uh, labor with it and toss it around with some salad tongs, someone's going to think that you're going to say something that is going to offend them. Or someone will instantaneously have that you know red light of, I'm about to be offended, flashing uh, in, in the middle of their cranium. And it's not the case. What Ford is trying to say, and what he has said before to the prime minister, is we've got vacant jobs Let's find a way to get more professionals here to fill them. The laziness on his part, but I would make the case that the instantaneous reaction to jump, I, I, think, I think the best thing, put it this way, the best thing that he could have done yesterday is come out and said, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't explain this properly, but here's what I meant to say. And that's fine. And that's understandable. And who doesn't have that moment sometimes? Who doesn't have that occasion? I got three and a half hours in front of a live microphone with great people around me and great infrastructure. You think that's not going to happen? That's, that's, that's 17 and a half hours of radio a week. There's some commercials here and there, and thank you for that, because I couldn't talk that long myself or with other people. But either way, you think in 17 and a half live hours, I don't have a delete button. I'm not writing a column. I can't edit something out. Doug Ford couldn't edit out the clumsiness of his words. And again, didn't understand there was some vitriol and emotion there. I want you to listen to this. From 2018, he's running for premier. He doesn't have the job yet. It's looking good. But there were no sure things when he's on the campaign trail in early May. And he was questioned. The story he was questioned about was a statement that said something to the extent of, we have to take care of our own before pushing for immigrants to move to northern Ontario. And there is that great debate, isn't there, that when people get cleared for immigration, usually there's a destination point. They know who their employer is going to be. They may even know their salary benefits and vacation time. They know. Or there's a big gap between that and people who are coming from war-torn countries, unsafe environments, uh, terrible, in, you know, terrible infrastructure, and they're refugees. That's a, but there's not much middle ground anymore, as I said yesterday, at, where, where a half century ago, people were getting off the boat, getting off a bus, getting off a plane and going, I'm in Canada now. What do I do? The first 15 minutes of, uh, of the Borat movie, that doesn't happen anymore. 
I don't know whether Borat was looking for a job. He was looking to make a movie documentary, but that's neither here nor there. Here's what Doug Ford said three years ago. And remember, I'm saying if he says this two days ago, he's fine. Here it is. Let me tell you, Ford Nation, Ford Nation is the most diverse group anywhere in Canada, anywhere. And you, you can see that. I'm a huge supporter of new Canadians. I'm a huge supporter of new immigrants coming to this country trying to make their way. So we're gonna fill, we're gonna make sure that we fill the skills gap, increasing access to apprenticeships, reforming foreign credential recognition process, because there's so many people that come to this country, I talk to them, they call me up, and by the way, there's very few politicians, very few leaders of parties that will take a personal phone call or give their cell number out. I give it to all new Canadians, I give it to everyone actually that say, I have credentials in another country, Doug, but they aren't recognized here. So we're gonna speed that process up. People mm. with credentials wanna come here. They wanna start working immediately. Okay, so yeah, say that two days ago. Say that, that's fine. That's not insulting. That's not disturbing. I don't think that that can get misinterpreted. There's a level of immigration that would be too much for our country to handle. There is a level that would be too low to fill wage, you know, labor gaps and important jobs. Are there jobs? This is the problem sometimes. This was the entire argument about, you know, how how to qualifying illegal immigrants in the United States. And this is way before Donald Trump. The argument was we get to the point where there's just jobs that Americans don't want to do. Well, we got to raise standards so that they do want to do them. There's that. But in the meantime, we have to fill the jobs. We have to have people doing certain jobs. So I think Doug Ford's language there, if that's what he says two days ago, great. But he left it open for interpretation. And that's why there's bows and arrows right now uh, headed towards him. And, you know, he was able to deflect them yesterday. But I think people are still going to keep writing about it and talking about it. I don't doubt that. Here we go. Rob Trevison's here. Shiva Siddiqui here as well. Dave Bradley, uh, Greg Brady. Big difference if it was Greg Bradley and Dave Brady, but that's not the case. So confusing. It's <laughs> really hard. <laughs> I told you I was Brad Gregory to uh, one of the uh, women I worked with at my <laughs> restaurant for ages. She would literally call. She must have seen Brady, Gregory, and she yeah. would call me and leave messages. She goes, Hi, Brad. I'm just looking to see if you can cover the Saturday shift at fourth. I'm like... <laughs> My God, the disrespect, yeah. we the, tri get, the triggering. When no one knew how to be triggered in 1991, I was. I, I, I still get pitches from PR companies saying, hey, Brad, <laughs> hope all is well. I'm like, yeah, it's a delete right there. My father's name uh, is Brian. I was about to say was. No, he's still with me. And uh, and he would get like B-R-A-I-N from companies. Brain. Really? Brain. Brain Brady. Brady. That's right. Not that's, a bad nickname. No, nah, that's a pretty good one, actually. Yeah, it's a compliment. Hey, before we get going, are you guys surprised that I'm looking at Raptors tickets. I heard on the way in, oh, it's it's pretty much sold out. It's not even close to being sold out. And we forget sometimes with cost. Like Sheba, if you want to take uh, all six of you, the the six the, the the six Sheba clan tonight, you could sit 21 rows from the floor, about mid court. How's 502 a ticket sound to you? Really? I think we forgot what the prices were like at Raptors and, and <laughs> Leafs regular season games when we were That's away. Nuts. I do. It's wow. nuts. It is crazy. That's 502 a seat, 479 plus the $23 handling fee. And I'm like, you so what handle are the nosebleeds? What are the nosebleeds going for? Uh, I'm glad you asked. Uh, at mid-court, like you can go way up to the top mid-court, you're looking at 111.75. <sighs> it's still a lot for yeah. to be yeah. way, way up there. It is. Yeah, you think about it. Even you and, you know, you want to take your son or daughter to the game. So just two of you, that's well over $200. And you're into about a $400 night. And once you realize the cost, it, it extrapolates itself out. Because once you realize the cost of the tickets, you are spending $16 a beer. You need to drink well, yeah, yeah. after it's figuring funny. out what this is doing to your bank it's, account. It's funny you say that because I remember, this is date aging me, but I remember way back when in that Sprite Zone, I used to pay $16. <laughs> That's right. That wasn't Six, too long ago either. No, it wasn't. $16 a ticket to see the Raptors. Those were the Ar Andrea Bargnani years. That's oh, why. Oh, yeah. The Garbajosi years also. Yeah. But I honestly, I think that's the only time I paid for a ticket. I usually mm. try and get free tickets or else I'm not going. 
I'll watch it on TV. Rob, our show, you know, we're not gonna <laughs> we're not gonna reveal state secrets again because uh, we're not Netflix. But uh, we're gonna we're gonna send you to a Raptors game later this year. We're gonna okay, find cool. the cheapest game imaginable yeah. and the worst seat imaginable, <laughs> and it's on us. I'll, it's I'll on Dave Shima. Yeah, one hundred percent. Only be two hundred bucks. You might only need, you might only see one net, but you'll hear the crowd reaction <laughs> at the other net. So That's you know all I need. That. Obstructed okay. view. Uh, October 20th, Dave. Yeah, on this day, 1818, the 49th parallel formed as the border between the U.S. and Canada. It's been that long. But uh, here we go. We still have that 49th parallel. (laughs) If you guys could add something to Canada from America geographically, what would it be? I'd like to take Alaska. I think that would be a good get. (laughs) No. Yeah? Yeah. No. No, we need either California or Florida. But don't you have to take the stuff in between? You got to take Washington and yeah. Oregon. That's not what you and, said. That's not what you asked. I, but me. how? I we can't. We didn't take. Oh, look at Alaska. They've got Alaska. They didn't take everything in between. Yeah. But Alaska's I, on the border of the Yukon, so that works, right? Well, I, I want Florida or California. I want something hot, something where there's oh. sun all the time, something we can go to without knowing that we're still in Canada. I was yeah, thinking so Buffalo. I, I, <laughs> I say California and the Pacific Northwest for sure. The Pacific, yeah, yeah. You can always go to Leamington if you want warm weather. It's true. <laughs> it's true. The most southern point in Canada. It's the yeah. warmest place on the continent. Yeah, exactly. It's a regular. The Caribbean and, and Leamington and Col- and Tecumseh <laughs> and Colchester often don't get compared. But yeah, exactly. Uh, this day, 1975, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that teachers can spank their students as long as they give a verbal warning first. 1975. <laughs> well, Dave, did, did you do you ever know of anybody, any teacher that put their hands on a kid in in the 80s when you went to school? No, no, I, I can't no. remember anything like Never. that. Never. Yeah, me too. Never. Okay, here I go. Bad boy of the group. What's oh, new? No. Uh, I remember going to the office. My a kid and I were pushing each other when we came in from recess. We both got sent to the office, and the teacher went to the re- like the receptionist then and said, um, "You, Miss Smith, can you get me the strap?" Oh and I don't know what the strap is, but the guy next to me is like must have been a serial offender because he starts squirming, going, "No, no, no, no!" And the guy actually like brought it out, showed us what it was, made us put our hands out, but then he hit the desk instead. But I'm going. This is. I'm in third grade. I'm eight oh, years wow. old. Awful. And my parents were teachers. That's amazing. Like, I know. And and I know a girl went down. She was misbehaving in third or fourth grade and got the strap. She showed us the mark on her hand in like 1980. Wow. How bad was the mark? Like, was it Purple. significant? Really? Absolutely. Yeah. On, the, on the wrist, on the hand. On the, on, it might have been on the Oof. fleshy part of the hand. Yeah. Brutal. Yeah. I don't know when it stopped horrible. here. I don't have a clue. I, yeah, I think they just sort of phased it out. But it's kind of good that they did. not many politicians in the last federal election were running on bringing the strap back to their communities i don't know why i I can't figure that out exactly (laughs) on this day 1992 the first ever world series game held in canada the blue jays beat the braves 3-2 to take a two games to one series lead what a game that was i always forget whether that was the game or the game after when um they chased Deion sanders down and thought they had a triple play do you remember kelly gruber tags the foot and he definitely got him. Like if there was replay back then, Dave, they that's a that's a triple play. Um, but they didn't give it. They didn't give them the triple play. I get those two games confused because we the Jays lost one, and that that's what forced the game six on the Saturday night yeah. in Atlanta, and people were really stressed about that. And the Jays won obviously in six games the next year when they were home. Yeah, that's right. I can't remember which game that was either, but I just remember the the crowd erupting and the entire city mm. getting behind that series. That was uh, it was an amazing feeling, right? It, it was very much like the Raptors run. Uh, it was of 2019, and so. probably tickets for that game uh, face value ten times cheaper than Raptors Wizards tonight, <laughs> depending on where you're sitting. There was a few more available though. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, sad news, though. In 2011, this was the day that Momar Gaddafi was killed. Uh, You go from the highs of the Jays to the lows (laughs) of Momar Gaddafi. But uh, it it was a a point in time that you should note, and it happened in uh, 2011. I believe it was 10 years ago. I think we're doing Dictators Week. This is like Shark Week. We're doing Dictators Week because we mentioned the Hussein trial the other day. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. We're very... We're doing, uh, yeah. But remember, in 86, he was like, he felt like the biggest threat to world peace. Like yeah. the U.S. was after his bombing nightclubs in Germany and bombing and, and obviously a constant threat to, to Israel, constant threat to England, like Western Europe. So Reagan sort of had him in his crosshairs, right? Yeah, yeah. He was in, in the wow. crosshairs for, for a considerable amount of time. And, so. then, and I'm not sure any of us ever learned how to spell his name. No. 
So there's that. <laughs> Sometimes it's a K, sometimes it's a G, right? It's true, yeah. Yeah. Uh, On this date, 1982, the number one single, John Cougar's Jack and Diane. Now, the name, right? He goes, John Cougar, the record company says, call yourself something cool, almost like a DJ, like Johnny Cougar. And he hated that, apparently, so an album after this, he he, he became John Cougar Mellencamp. And then he became just John Mellencamp at a certain point in time. There was a little bit of an evolution with the name. But then what happened to him? Where'd he go? Yeah, it's a good point. He's around. He does concerts and whatnot. He should be like Bruce Springsteen, right? People don't stop talking about him. When was the last time you saw him? Um, (laughs) You got me. It's been a while. He's like 70. Is Mellencamp his real name? That's right. Mellencamp. So where and did then, the cougar come from? Yeah. Uh, the record company guy said you got to call yourself something cooler oh, than so that. Oh, so he made the cougar up. Yeah, absolutely. He He's didn't want cougar. it, but they He's said, hey, cougar. you want a record put out? It'd be real ni- It'd be a real shame to cancel your record deal. You're now Johnny Cougar. That's what about Dave, Davey Cougar? No, Let's go with that. I don't want that Come at all. No. Dave Cougar. Rob, Bradley. you got a great life ahead of you. <laughs> Rob, Rob Cougar. You could say you're John Cougar's... Uh, yeah. How about Puma? Legitimate or illegitimate Can I be a Puma? Rob Puma. Yeah, Rob Puma. Lynx. I like that. I like that. My dad, by the way, I'm driving. I remember being in the car. My dad was no moralist, but uh, he hated that line. Diane sitting on Jackie's lap, got his hand between her knees. He'd often change the station right after that line or as that line was coming out. I'm like, really? I don't know what's going on there. I'm, I'm, I'm 10. You know, we're not, we're not getting that lucky yet, Dad. Don't worry. It's not influencing me in a negative way. Hey, thanks for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. Back with a live show Thursday. That's tomorrow for some of you, 5.30 to 9 a.m. Please feel free to subscribe. Give our podcast a rating, whatever you think of it, and constructive criticism, always welcome.